0: but the psychology of the founder. And with each episode, I'm going to help you take your life and business to levels you never thought possible. If you're ready to play the game of life and business in God mode, then this is the podcast for you. My guest today is Chris Marhefka, a transformation catalyst. Chris facilitates transformation by opening hearts, expanding minds, and giving people permission to be their most authentic self. He creates life-changing experiences in emotional healing, inner child work, somatic experiencing, breath work, masculine embodiment, relationships, and communication. He helps men with their development and how they show up as leaders. He came into this healing work after over a decade in entrepreneurship and coaching where he has worked with over 2000 clients in physical, mental, emotional, energetic, and spiritual development. Chris has grown and exited three six- and seven-figure companies. He's an investor, a consultant, and a mentor, and it is such a joy to welcome him on the show. Welcome to the show, Chris. Ani, thank you so much for having me, brother. So double treat today. We had a great workout this morning, and it was a very different kind of workout than most people are used to. It was more focused Mm -hmm. on longevity and really balancing out some of the places that get overlooked in our physical development. And I think that's a great segue into one of the things that I know we wanted to speak about, which was this idea, this quote, which neither of us can remember who originated. But the quote is basically that specialization is for insects and that becoming a better generalist and not having weak spots and actively working on those weak spots is actually the most optimal way for us as a species to develop, particularly in this day and age. So let's hear your perspective on that and why and how
1: you resonate with that idea. Yeah, I think that workout is a great microcosm because both of us, like within the workout, we're both saying, wow, I'm feeling this imbalance or I'm feeling things I've never, muscles I've never felt before. And it's like the things we were doing were so simple and we didn't do a lot, but we came out of it with a very effective workout. And that's the term that I use a lot when I'm talking about being a better generalist is you become more effective at life. I lived most of my adulthood Going all in on one area of my life, whether it be my body and athletics or business and building wealth. And those are the two big ones in my 20s. But every time I would, it would be at the sacrifice of everything else in my life. And so for me, I didn't know how to hold multiple things at the same time. And so in my 30s, and really, especially over the past five years, I've been developing a way to a systematic approach to being a better generalist by regularly taking inventory, setting benchmarks and measurable ways in which I'm showing up in the in a physical way in my body and my health, in a mental way with my mindset, in my relationships, my happiness, and then also in my wealth and more tangible measures. I think that we are, as a species, humans, we have, I always say we're the most adaptable, the most resilient, The we have the capacity for the broadest range of skills of any animal on the planet. And yet over our life, we actually start to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow. And I believe it's causing a lot of the modern challenges that we deal with Because we're missing out on some of the great parts of what it means to be human. Like, for instance, like moving our bodies. Like a lot of people don't have a daily practice of doing that, but it adds so much value to my life. Even if it's not the main focus of my world right now, when I'm doing that consistently, I'm happier. I'm a better partner. I'm more energized. And so that's just like one simple example, but it paints a picture of like why, I was about to quote some, I think we're at 40% obesity rates now in the US. We're at two, I think two thirds of the population with depression or anxiety diagnosed. I don't know what the number is that are on antidepressants, but it's astronomically high. And on top of that, I mean, we have countless challenges that people are facing with mental health, with home life and physical abuse. And a lot of it is because some very like simple aspects of being human have been neglected. And
0: there are many ways to even think about that because it appears to me like a fractal. Most people these days are minds with a body rather than bodies with a mind. Think even in the course of a single day, if I don't spend at least a couple of hours in my body, I, I have a hard time sleeping. I my mood's off. I feel more irritable. I don't get a lot of anxiety, but I just feel very tight and tense. And I find that the there's a, there's another quote we're just quoting away, but there's a quote that you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall mm-hmm. to the level of your standards. And the Probably the best thing I did my entire life was making physical movement a non-negotiable goal. Even when every other part of my life was going to shit, I would still, at the very least, Mm. move my body. And that one thing has kept me basically from falling through rock bottom. Mm. And so that's one, the mind-body health, business relationship Mm. complex. And then there's also this spectrum of specialization versus generalization in terms of the work we do. Da Vinci, for example, and was an expert in human anatomy. He was an expert in astronomy. He was an expert in in art and music. And basically, the smartest people a few hundred years ago were polymaths. They had such a wide range of exposure to different disciplines that their brain was able to actually come up with with solutions to problems that no one else could. They could conceive ideas that just weren't possible when someone was localized to one field. And I've always thought that the most brilliant, innovative ideas come from the intersection of different fields. And our society really pushes people very narrow into Mm -hmm. one specific field. And that's great in some ways, but we're both entrepreneurs. We both know that as entrepreneurs, we need to understand sales. We need to understand marketing, Mm -hmm. understand psychology and leadership and this and that. And it's the entrepreneurs who struggle to expand Mm -hmm. their expertise across different domains that struggle the most
1: yeah you just nailed it man and i think that part of the problem is that even the solutions that are sold as like you have to completely like uproot your life but in every area of life there's like these minimum effective doses of everything that will get you 80 percent with 20 percent of the effort and, like you said, I have just this list that's now a part of who I am that are these non negotiables that I hold myself with integrity to do them regularly because I know that I've proven it to myself that if I just do this small thing in this one area of my life, like it's going to have a massive impact. I'll give another example that's not as tangible as the body. That one's really easy because a lot of people understand it. But one of the things I recognized was that. If I share at least one piece of gratitude for my partner every single day, so I find one thing to to either acknowledge her or be grateful for about her and share that with her, our relationship is exponentially better. There's a different level of depth and trust and there's less tension. That like simple practice, and I notice it because I track it, Like anytime it starts to slip and I'm like, oh, I haven't been doing that for a while, it's usually when there's more tension or things aren't as lubricated as they normally would be. And so what i found to be really effective that is identifying for people what that minimum effective dose is in different areas so that they can start getting the benefits of it without feeling this need to completely overhaul their entire life. Because I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of with transformation is that like it's all going to come crashing down. And that's one way. But there's also ways where you can do it more methodically, more more systematically. And that's the part that that I love to add value to people's lives is just removing one part that doesn't serve and adding another part in that does serve at a very easily dosed level and building from there. So I love the idea of the minimum effective dose. And I love it
0: in pretty much every domain. I think it holds Uh, right. It holds true in health. It holds true in it holds true in relationships. It even holds true in my psychedelic therapy work, where most people who work with psychedelics are chasing cathartic experiences and I bias towards always minimum effective dose. And something that I have been reflecting on is that most people are looking for The maximum rather than looking for the minimum. And I think that comes from this tendency that human beings have to be very all or nothing. I'm all in or I'm all out. I know. Right. I'm doing this. If I start working out, then I'm going to work out five days a week. I'm going to just put as many plates on the bar as I can and I'm going to go hard. Right. And then whenever there's a disruption in that routine or there's an injury or something, then It's a total pullback, and the pendulum swings the other way. And I know you've experienced this in your lives as well, and it's your ideology around being a generalist, around incorporating very doable, minimum Mm -hmm. doses in those pillars of health, wealth, relationships, mindset, spirituality, it's an embodied one. It's coming from experience. It's not coming from theory or information or the mind. So I'd love for you to share how that wisdom accrued in your life and what were some of the experiences that you went through that really brought you Mm -hmm. face to face
1: with this? Yeah, those were the biggest, most pivotal turning points in my life, to be honest, is when I learned those lessons. The first really big one came and this was a massive shift in my life when I was Training as an athlete, I was both an ultra endurance racer, obstacle course racer, I was racing Ironmans at the time. And I was also training as a CrossFit athlete. So lots of training, we'll just put it there, lots of volume. And so my body was constantly stressed. And at the same time, I was growing two businesses, scaling one nationwide and working probably 80 hours a week on average. And so. Every single thing was, everything in my life was around those two areas. It was about being the best athlete I could and being the best in business that I could. And what happened was a series of, it started as a series of unexplained injuries started happening. And as I look back, like those were the warning signs. And I didn't pay attention to them. And so I kept pushing and I kept pushing. And I remember, I remember I would be sacrificing. Like there was a time where I was even like not really sleeping. I was sleeping like two to three hours a night just so I could train more or work more. It was a crazy time in my life. But what ended up happening was this massive wake-up call when I wasn't listening to the early signs. The big sign came that I could not pay attention to. And I was in a competition and the capillaries in my brain actually exploded. And it was basically just a combination of I was too tight. I was too contracted because my whole life was under tension and my body was under tension. I was stressed all the time. And that combined with just the intense exercise, my brain basically exploded like a grenade went off in my head. And so I went from like, did this all in best mentality, like we were talking about to, I had no option, but sitting on the couch. I couldn't work because I couldn't think. I had this constant headache. Like I was getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. Every heartbeat was like a baseball bat to the back of the head. And so I couldn't think I had just constant headaches 24 seven. I couldn't raise my heart rate above resting because it would make this condition worse. And so for seven months, I basically sat around. I had to accept the fact that I had created this massive identity for myself, who I was attempting to be, but at the complete detriment to everything else in my life. And that was also at a time where I had just gotten married. I was a terrible husband at the time because that was so far down on the priority list that it wasn't even a thing. And I didn't have kids, but had I, I would have been a completely non-existent father. And I had limited my focus so much. And that was the really big wake-up call for me is I had to learn how to reincorporate those things into my life without it destroying my life again. Because I thought I was going to die like I did. I was afraid the next time I would go back to lift weights that my brain would explode and I would die. And so there was like a level of fear there that it forced me to learn that lesson. It forced me to learn a way that prioritized longevity and not just getting 1% more performance out. And then I started to, when I started to call it the middle way, when I started to learn the middle way, I started to realize how many areas of my life this could actually apply to. So it can apply to, I started applying it to learning information, like reading books or writing or learning music or learning another language. Or being a better partner. Like I said, some, there's a lot of minimum effective doses for that. And there's even, I use it in my relationship with my parents. For instance, I do a similar thing with them. Like I share with them every time I call something I'm grateful for of that has just created so much more depth with them. That's like my minimum effective dose that I use. So that was the, that was a really big lesson. And yeah, it forced me to face that the way I was living was not at all sustainable. And I think many people have not yet faced that yet. They haven't accepted that. I think the signs are there for a lot of people that the way they're living isn't sustainable, but they haven't actually acknowledged it. And so I'm, I say now I was fortunate. Like that happened to me when I was in my early 30s but it was the turning point for my life of living a more balanced and more fulfilled, more happy and more just all around like enjoyable life that I'm also achieving. And that was a big, that was a big lesson for me is in the more recent years, I've started to incorporate back a lot of those more achievement-oriented practices, more of the discipline, more of the structure, more of the routine, because I swung to the other side of the pendulum. I let go of all those achievement things, and I got soft in my body, I got soft in my mind. I allowed myself to just be very flowy after letting all that stuff go, and I realized that wasn't the way either. So I teach really a way to take the middle path, and incorporate the minimum effective dose of both sides when it's important to when it's important in giving yourself the capacity to go hard when the time is clear to go hard and then also to rest hard (laughs) when the time is calling to rest.
0: That's beautifully said and it really appears that the optimum state that we can try to maintain is somewhere, it's a dynamic balance between that structure and flow. And I see this a lot with entrepreneurs and leaders. Like I'll speak for myself to share an anecdote. I grew up in a very, very rigid and emotionally and psychologically abusive household. And there was so much pressure and so much intensity. And the expectations were so high and unforgiving That I spent a lot of my life rebelling against any structure. Mm. And of course, when we become adults, we're not actually rebelling against a parental structure or a structure from someone who created that in our childhood. We're actually rebelling against the internalized parental role that we have in our heads. And so essentially, it's a kind of self rebellion. And so a lot of people who struggle with getting things done, they struggle with productivity, they struggle with integrity, self-integrity. And I know that's one of the topics we're going to explore in this conversation as well. They're really rebelling against themselves. And that internal rebellion swings them in the opposite direction. And they oscillate between these two extremes. Finding that balance, finding that middle path, as you put it, is really the only way to stay in the game sustainably over yes. the long term, and it's this—it's a this shift that happens for people sometimes when they experience a life-threatening injury, as we yes. did, which really forces them to stop mm-hmm. and really reflect. For others, it happens—they experience tragedy. For me, it was a personal tragedy that caused me to really examine how out of balance I was. And the other thing that came up for me as you were talking was that most people, when they're out of balance, they know it, but they Mm -hmm. hide from themselves. They fragment from themselves and they turn away from themselves. And the mechanism that basically creates this, the wall, is the wall of self deception. And I think Mm -hmm. self deception is. I'll say this for entrepreneurs, but it's pretty much every human being's worst enemy because it's not an enemy outside, it's an enemy inside. We're not hiding or avoiding someone outside, we're hiding and avoiding ourselves. So it creates this estrangement from ourselves because that's what needs to happen for someone to, let's say, work 80-hour weeks to grow their business. And neglect their relationship with their wife and maybe their kids. They know it, right? Waking up and doing this every day, every week, every month. And on some level, they're not acknowledging it. They're not acknowledging the true impact of what's happening. And not acknowledging it is actually what enables them to keep making the same choice over and over again until maybe something happens where. They get sort of divorce papers and it wakes Mm -hmm. them up finally. It's the wake up call. Yeah.
1: Yeah, man, you nailed it. And it's, I don't want to be the person who lives my life waiting for that external wake up call, that universe slapping me in the face to say, pay attention to this. And so what I've, what I practice for myself is coming to this place of in inner meticulous integrity with myself, where I'm constantly taking inventory, constantly accepting. And I think that's the first step is when I learned how to start accepting all those parts of myself. Even just noticing when I was talking myself out of thing or creating this t- story to support something that I knew wasn't serving me or out of balance. I could feel myself like manipulating my inner mind to make it okay. And so just getting in the habit and the practice of observing that, holding it with more acceptance, because then it it can relax it. This is actually like an embodiment, right? Like you can literally relax around the thought that like, I'm doing this to myself. And when you relax around it, there's less power to it. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing again. And cool. (laughs) but it no longer has the power to control. And that that simple observa- observation, acceptance, and relaxing is how people can gain control back over their life. And I, I use control loosely. It's more of just a, an ownership, a responsibility, and, and an empowerment as well. Because once you start learning that really the only thing in the way of you having everything in your life is you, and you can start loving the loving and accepting the parts of you that have gotten in the way with that rather than making it more tension. So you will become aware of it. And then you have to be like, yeah, like, great. And that's there too. And that's a part of me too. And once you can get to that point, those parts have less and less control, which make them actually very easy to change. And that's the point about transformation that like doesn't have to be hard is like when you're in full acceptance of all the parts, it can be very light, it can be actually fun, but it takes getting past of the attachment to it, the attachment to that thought of who you are or that mechanism in your mind that's telling you you need to do this or should do this. Yeah, the way I used to describe this was
0: giving the darkness a seat at the table. Mm Mm-hmm and treating those aspects of us that are repressed, that are that maybe there's shame or guilt around, and treating them like puppies that show up to the door at dinner time, rather than monsters. We turn away from them because they seem scary. And they're a part of us, which makes it even scarier. And the more we turn away from ourselves, the more control those parts of us accrue. Mm -hmm. And they have control, not because of any inherent quality, but they have control because we are unable to face them. And our inability to face them is what gives them that control, that power Mm -hmm. over us. And those are just aspects of our psyche that are in the shadow. And so this is Mm -hmm. what we're talking about is basically the whole idea of shadow work where by bringing those parts of us into the light of awareness and accepting them and potentially even loving them what a radical idea we, the power transfers from parts of us that are beyond our grasp to our sort of conscious whole integrated self and you know that i think you and i both believe that's the seat of our power that's mm-hmm. what allows a man or a woman or every any anyone and everyone in between to feel powerful. The yeah. power is not something that we get from the outside; it's mm-hmm. the consequence of us doing the hard work of facing every part of us and accepting every part of us. Someone we have a fear of public speaking. Because deep down, they, something happened in third grade and the whole class laughed at them. And that's when a part of them basically went into hiding. And that shame was so unbearable that they could never face that part again. But maybe they grow up and they go to one of your retreats and they actually get to face this part. of. And there's a beautiful container and there's other people who are witnessing them. And there's a corrective experience that happens. And now that part of them doesn't run or limit their life anymore. Now, because they're totally okay, they're in relationship with that part of them. Now, they can actually get on stage. They can Mm -hmm. speak at a conference. They can be interviewed on a podcast. And that liberates them from those limitations that a part of them that was in the shadow was creating because most people they don't want to face the we fear more the emotion we'll have to experience than the thing itself yes. and so I'd love okay. for you to share how this appears in your work in, in actual retreats what are some of the transformations that you've seen
1: hmm. yeah yeah man I love what you just shared there because the when it comes to fear, our story of the fear is exponentially larger and more dramatic than the reality itself of it. And sometimes we can get caught up in making it bigger so much so that it distracts us and keeps us avoidant from doing the actual Thing. One of the thing, one of the exercises that I want to bring up as we were talking about shadow work is, it's actually a really practical exercise to help people fragment their psyche into five parts. I find this is really helpful for people. And there's probably a lot more, but these are just the five parts that I use to help people understand all these different forces that are at play. And a lot of people have a primary and a secondary. We've got the shadow, like you talked about, and those are all the parts that are shameful and that you don't want people to see parts you don't want to face you've got the inner critic or the inner judge this is the one that's always right and wrong should do this should do that it's always it's for a lot of people it's what stimulates action but it's from a place of lacking from it's a a place should doing this and that's not a very effective place to be acting from so the shadow of the inner critic and inner judge there's the ego and the ego is basically your facade that you out to the world. It's what you the labels you use about yourself. It's the protection that we have, the armor, the inner child. And the inner child is just like it sounds. It's literally the small version of yourself that oftentimes didn't get what it needed at a certain critical point in time, like that moment you talked about with public speaking. And this is where I'll tied into the retreats is we actually can go into that experience and close the loop on it and this is what we do in the healing part of the retreats is we actually take people through that experience where the imprint was made and then they didn't get something oftentimes it's from mother and father and because had that child come home after that experience despite the other kids and the teacher and all the experience there had they come home and they received the love that they needed from mom, the acceptance from dad, and and you're perfect as you are, like you're doing great, they probably could have shown up the next day and then done the public speaking and it wouldn't have been impactful. And so oftentimes the real traumas or impacts come from what they didn't get or did get from mom or dad. And so in the retreats, we actually go through this experience and we teach them how to parent themselves through that moment. So because our mom and dad's job is done for us, now it's on us to parent that part that didn't get what they needed when they needed it. So that's the inner child. And then the last one is the heart. And the heart is what a lot of people would say is the seat of the soul. It's like our inner knowing and call it, if we use a, a business, like the heart is the chairman of the board. And so all five of them are sitting at the boardroom table. And all of them just want to be heard. All of them just want to be acknowledged. And once they're acknowledged, they, like you said, like they don't have power anymore. Once they're accepted, they know they have a seat at the table. They honestly, they're not as bad to be around. (laughs) They're, uh, they they have a part. in fact, like they do have a, they all have a useful part. And that's the other thing that is important is that they're there for a reason. Yeah. So man, in the retreats, it's some of the most powerful experiences is witnessing someone that has been paralyzed or handicapped by some event. Sometimes they don't even know what the event is when we first start, but paralyzed by some event that seems so insignificant. And yet it's affecting almost every aspect of their life. And I'm going to use, an, I'm going to use an example because, and this is the practice we go through at the retreats. This is actually a personal example. Man, this is using the model that I teach. When I was about four years old, I was playing soccer. And you and I are both soccer players. I was playing from, since I was very young and about four years old, There was like a scrimmage or practice. Who knows what four year olds do? It's not really soccer at that point, but the scrimmage or the game was coming to an end. And I remember, and this all came up in a healing experience. I remember this visceral feeling of all the kids getting picked up and hugging mom and dad. And yeah, great job, Timmy and good game. And and, like my excitement, my smiles and just looking around. And then it starts to fade because I'm starting to realize, Oh, where is my dad? And he's not there. And then all of a sudden I'm alone next to the coach and he doesn't think anything's going on. He's just waiting. He's just hanging out. But inside there's this internal there's this panic, there's this confusion, and eventually this complete lack of trust, trust in other people. And so this very Id- seemingly in- insignificant event led to, for the majority of my life, not really trusting other people. I would trust them to an extent, but Like whenever I would work with an employee, at one time I had 30 employees and I didn't actually fully trust them to do their job. Think of that stress on me to constantly be worried about all of that. And also how disempowering for them, even if I'm not saying it, they're feeling that that disempowerment when I'm not trusting them. I'm probably belittling them and unconsciously putting them down about their work. And the same thing in relationships as well. I never fully would let anyone in because I just didn't trust that it was safe. Meanwhile, so I'll paint the the reality of it, was dad was just 50 feet away watching my sister play and he thought it just ended five minutes later. So that five minute time gap is when all of this trauma happened in in me that impacted the rest of my life. And he comes back, picks me up, doesn't know anything's wrong, but inside there's this internal chaos happening and this lack of trust. And it was that moment that I drew everything in my life of shutting down to other people back to that moment, and I was able to rewrite that story by loving that inner child. Like the time when he was looking around for dad, me as adult self was there, just hugging him and loving him and being them there for him, and. That was the moment where I finally started to truly allow people in. And so what was, like, I didn't even have that conscious awareness of that memory until I was doing it. And so that would be an example of massive impact and shift in my life of going from not being able to trust anyone in anything to finally opening up and receiving that. Yeah, man, there's, I can share. So many, I don't know how far in the fringes we want to get, but like a lot of these people that that come have physical ailments that they can't really track or know why it exists. But going through this work and healing some of this inner, our inner psyche or our inner trauma will relieve something that has been with them, a physical ailment for their entire life because that physical ailment was a manifestation of this thing that they've been carrying and i've had people restore their hearing people that were like wearing hearing aids before i've had countless countless examples of there's one in particular that i'm thinking of he's he was a close friend and he became a client and saved his marriage hands down by facing himself all the things that he didn't like about himself. He was putting on his partner and making it about her. And there's one, one more example I want to share because it's present. And it was someone who came to a retreat a few years ago. And this is a men's retreat. And one of the things that I often find is really consistent is the need for father healing with men. And no matter what, no matter how they showed up, there's oftentimes things underneath the surface or at the surface that need to be addressed with father. And there's oftentimes a lot of underlying anger, pain, frustration, suffering that come from that. And we did a father healing exercise. And I think I told you about this when we were talking the other night. A few weeks ago, he reached out to me and he said that his father had passed. And I asked him how he was doing. And he said that, so that's obviously really hard and he's going through the grief process, but he felt it wasn't a surprise. It was coming if he knew it was coming and he felt relatively at peace with it because of after that healing exercise that he did at the retreat, he was able to have acceptance for his father and the person that he was and how he was showing up. And through that acceptance, he was able to find compassion and then eventually love to connect with him, to connect with him at a deeper level and to finally have the relationship that he wanted there. And and so he said, because of that, I feel like I'd find the last two years finally got to know who he was. And really feel the person that he was rather than the story that I had about him for my whole life up to that. Point. And yeah, and like that is invaluable because most people, most people say goodbye or have their parents leave this world. And it always feels like too soon. It's a common, it's too soon. I didn't get to do all the things I wanted, but real. What most people are re- really speaking to is they never felt the true connection with someone before they're gone. And so a lot of the work that we do in these retreats is finding the true connection with ourselves so that we can truly connect with other people at that level and not have these, these regrets. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. And so much more. The other favorable side effect
0: of opening our hearts to ourselves, bringing all of those painful, shards back into wholeness and really coming face to face with equal parts courage and compassion to all of those memories and experiences is that we get to own ourselves so much more and that ownership allows us to operate on a much wider and greater range from the boardroom to the bedroom to the field to the meditation cushion to being social and having community. I'd love for you to share more about how someone can think about expanding the range and being more multidimensional whether it's Mm -hmm. emotionally, whether it's the roles that they play. Because one of the things I appreciate about our friendship is that there's a lot of range. We can do a workout and really push ourselves. We can have insightful, deep conversations like this one. We can talk business and so much more. One of the things I value most about my relationship with Lee is that we can hang in pretty much every different range from just insane levels of intensity because we're both Scorpios and we're very intense to the tears and the, the very still present hard open spaces. And often we ride the wave across the spectrum on the same day in the same hour. And I can't imagine being in a romantic partnership with someone where that wide range doesn't exist. And I've always thought about this for myself as well. What I value so much in people is range. Can we go there? Can we operate in a variety of contexts? Or am I going to relegate you to this one context? Because that's where we have the most resonance, but there's pretty much an edge to where we can go.
1: Oh, I love this. So, the first thing I'll say is that we are limiting ourselves in our range more than other people are. And once we continuously communicate how we're limiting ourselves, people start to essentially buy that story, and then they also limit us. So it's like this self reciprocating relationship where it keeps you in it because you're both reciprocating your relationships and yourself, and so. I'm going to put that, this whole topic and conversation into my three phases of my model called sovereignty codes, because I think it applies perfectly here. So the first step in range is in finding that range is or I'll say embodying that range is you first have to touch it and what i mean by touch it is you have to have a visceral experience in your body of being as angry as you as cathartic as you can even touch like going further even further than you thought losing yourself in dance like just completely letting go or in music or in the depths of grief or sadness. And so this is a, this is the facilitated part. Phase one is like the shedding all of the layers that are keeping you from feeling that range. And so all the, all phase one is done in a really safe container because the first time I touched the depths of my anger, I was so, I was so, well, so afraid to go there in the first place. And every layer of it was this uncertainty of, is it okay to go there? Is it okay to touch that? And and there was encouragement and there was more and more. And then once I, it's as if I got to the bottom of that well and then deep breath and the weight was lifted because I finally touched the depths of it. And the same thing happened with grief and with sadness, especially when I was going through my separation and eventually divorce is when I finally faced what it meant to be truly sad and grieving. And there were so many constant times that I had to be held through and supported through getting further and further in that range because I didn't yet have the capacity to do it for myself. And that's why phase one is what I call the codependent or the healing phase, because it oftentimes requires us to have another person supporting us to let go of these boundaries and walls that we've set up for ourselves. And mostly what that person is providing is safety and love, period. You're just constant safety, constant love, so that your taking on that energy of safety and love for something that felt unsafe or felt like you couldn't love it in the past. And so you're literally just taking their energy of safety and love and applying it to yourself. And that's what a lot of facilitation in phase one is about. More safety, more love, more safety. And it allows people to touch these ranges that they didn't even think possible. And that's why phase one is also really chaotic. And it's a lot of energy Which is why it has to be done in a a safe container like a retreat or a healing space, because it can be explosive in a lot of ways. People touch parts of themselves they've never touched before. And that oftentimes creates peak experiences. Like, I remember the first time where I touched like the deepest belly laughter. Like, I couldn't stop and everything hurt, but I couldn't stop laughing. It was just like this pure joy space. And actually, this this is deferred. This is a point in, in psychedelics when I touched it. And it was like, I didn't think it was possible to be that happy and that joyful. And but it was also it's chaos. <laughs> and phase two is where you take all of that range that you just touched and you learn how to stabilize it. And That just means that you're in a conscious and intentional consideration of how you're bringing this as a practice into your life. So if it's, for instance, if it's anger, you have a anger practice that you're doing maybe beating the hell out of your bed or something like that, or punching a pillow or screaming into a pillow. Maybe it's a grief where you light a candle and you put on some music that embodies grief, and you just give yourself three hours to just let go of anything that's there. So there's different practices that we do to stabilize this. And what it, what stabilizing just means is it's making it more normal for us. We're just redefining what our normal is. And so there's the touching the range on phase one, going way out there phase two is stabilizing. It's what I call the independent stage because it's the time where we're starting to take responsibility for that range and all those parts of ourselves and reincorporating them back in, in a sustainable way, like we were talking about earlier. So it's forming a better relationship with our anger or our grief or our joy or our play applied to anything. And so you're consistently, phase two is the same thing as like training our body. It's meticulous. It's consistent. You just keep the practice going. And then one day you realize, you're like, wow, I've made a massive transformation in this. And it's now who I am. It's now like you and I, we have these non-negotiables. I don't think about doing my non-negotiables. They're just so embodied in who I am. It's yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) My routine probably looks crazy to certain people, but it's just what I've practiced over time. And it's just a part of who I am. So that's what phase two is all about. And phase two is where you're creating a solidness to who you are. And that's why it's the independent stage. You're literally building up. Some people would call it confidence. I like to think of it more as like an inner knowing, like a depth of knowing of who you are. And there's a strength to it, there's a presence to it. It's unmistakable when you meet someone that has this which gives you access to phase three. And phase three is when you expand into the world. It's what I call the co-creation phase. And it's where you now are able to spread your branches, open up, share your gifts with the world, share your vulnerabilities, because now you have this really solid trunk and roots. I always use this big tree analogy, like big, strong, roots are deep trunk is strong and you can open up those branches as wide as you want and there's no storm that's going to knock you over because you're so rooted and that's where phase three is phase three is where you can have truly co-created relationships that are free from trauma bonding or from attachments where you can do the same thing in business where you can create win-win scenarios and You can have friendships that are nourishing and energizing rather than training. And a lot of people love the idea of getting to phase three. It's where a lot of like manifestation talk is, but most people are skipping over the really critical phase two of stabilizing and getting really strong. Like we were doing today, we were getting really strong at these little stabilizing muscles so that we could do the bigger and more sexy exercises (laughs) and... And so that, like seeing it as that three-phase process is how you get access to that embodied range. Because now when we show up, when our friends show up, our closest friends that have this range, they show up as their fullest expression of themselves. It's not that they're trying to be, it's just who they are because they've touched it. They've practiced and stabilized it. And now they're just expressing in the world who they are. And- from a from a grounded place because they've practiced it for so long. Like you can tell the difference between someone who's touching it for the first time and just out of phase one and needs more of that stabilization versus, yeah, this is just me. <laughs> just me being me, me. Is that your definition of sovereignty? Yeah. So I define sovereignty as where freedom meets responsibility and what that's like we are all inherently free we are born free we are free beings but we shackle ourselves with a lot of different things i won't go into all of them but we're constantly learning to shackle ourselves from the time we're born and the part of reclaiming your freedom is the letting the shackles go and releasing those again that's phase one where you really rediscover your freedom feel free like the first time you like scream at the top of your lungs the first time it's freeing as hell and then the responsibility part is where you after working at phase two for so long and stabilizing and strengthening what you're really doing is increasing your capacity of what you can hold and care for in your life. And in doing that, you can then choose to take responsibility for things in your life from a knowingness that you can care for it all. Most people, a lot of people view responsibility as burden because they're not quite choosing it. They're not choosing it and it feels like two more than they can hold and so all that is a a teaching and learning how to expand their capacity so that they can hold all of these things because the energy of responsibility when it meets freedom is a energy of choosing it's i'm choosing To hold all this in my life. Because I know that I can. I know that I'm built for it. And I know that I've done the work. To be able to do it. And that's how I define. Sovereignty. And where freedom. Meets responsibility. And. Yeah. It's honestly. Also. A never-ending journey from the standpoint that we'll continuously cycle through those three phases because as we expand and as we hold more and as we choose to have more responsibility man there's been many points in my life where i've hit my upper ceiling and it can't happen in business where i started earning more money than i ever imagined and i hit this upper ceiling And I contracted back down because I didn't feel like I could hold it all. I didn't do the practice of holding that much. And so many of us do it in our relationships. Once we touch a level of vulnerability or intimacy, we contract back because it's, whoa, that's the edge. And instead that's okay. It's okay to have that initial contraction, but the practice of relaxing into that contraction, noticing it, accepting it, and then Gradually building up the strength to hold it. And the tagline for sovereignty codes is be the ruler of your own kingdom. And so really what, how I define as kingdom is what you have the capacity to care for. And so your capacity as it grows, your kingdom will grow. You'll be able to hold more and more over time. And so it starts with us. (laughs) Our kingdom is just us to begin with. And we have to learn how to really hold and care for and rule our own kingdom of ourselves. And then eventually we can maybe take on business role or a partner or a family, maybe a community, keep going. But every time we do it, we hit a new edge and we go through that process again. And just like training our physical bodies though, every time we go through it, we get more efficient at doing it, get more effective and it gets easier and easier over time. Beautifully put,
0: this is one of the core aspects of my work with entrepreneurs, which is to expand their capacity for both goodness. We all have a very abbreviated capacity for goodness. We reach that upper limit and then there's an immediate recoiling. For entrepreneurs, it appears as income roller coaster or or a revenue ceiling that they just can't break through. And also a capacity, increasing the capacity for responsibility because entrepreneurs are paid directly in proportion to how much responsibility they're willing to take. And when entrepreneurs reach the upper limit of how much responsibility they're willing to take, and that usually happens because of reaching the upper limit of how much responsibility their nervous system and their their identity and their psychology can hold, right? Because those end ranges haven't been tested, then they hit another ceiling. And so typically, just being able to break through those ceilings produces a lot more growth than pushing harder or working more, which is what the conventional wisdom is. And the other thing that came up for me when you were talking was that the more I reflect on this it seems to me that we cannot really separate responsibility from freedom. Now, if you ask nine, ten people what they think of sovereignty, I bet nine out of them will say something to the effect of freedom, right? I can, I'm free, no one's telling me what to do, I can do what I want, there's no encumbrance mm-hmm. in and around my being. That's what most people I think of when they think of sovereignty. And I think it's one of the things I love most about what you just shared is that without responsibility, freedom doesn't actually exist. It's the yin and yang. It's the black and white. It's the other side of the coin. And you can't have just one side of the coin. We can't really know freedom unless we know responsibility. And we can't really know responsibility unless we know freedom. And I think they have this reciprocal relationship where, and this is the entrepreneur example is particularly resonant for me and for a lot of listeners to the show. But entrepreneurs, most entrepreneurs, they start their business because they want freedom. And the thing, the statistics on entrepreneurs who eighty percent of them basically go out of business or shut down in the first eighteen months or something—it's a crazy statistic, right? There's a very small. Yeah, percentage that actually make it through. And then only 0.1% actually hit seven figures. I really think that point when entrepreneurs realize that to have freedom, they are going to have to take way more responsibility than they bargain for is where most people fall off. And the people who make it and make it is very subjective. I don't take singular or one-dimensional approach to defining that. It's not just money. It's also, as we talked about, do you have a great relationship? Is your body in great shape? Do you have you know, amazing health? Because money isn't everything. Are you wealthy in all those areas? But the ones that really make it, I really think, and I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs, and the thing that I see in common is that the ones who are successful have all figured out a way for themselves because it is a little subjective, to take responsibility in a way that feels good for them. It's not always easy, but it feels good for them. And there isn't the spring that is being loaded in the opposite direction, waiting to snap them to the opposite end of chaos because they're internally rebelling against the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the inflection points in business so, there's this inflection point I see a lot where entrepreneurs start resenting their team, resenting the business, because they see the business that requires them, the team that requires them as a shackle. And again, the ones who break through that plateau are the ones who realize that responsibility is actually not a bad thing. Their responsibility is at the ultimate gateway to freedom. Without that responsibility, the freedom would be meaningless. And all the people who have these dreams of sitting on a beach, collecting millions of dollars in passive income, easy to glorify that. But put 10 people in that situation and nine of them will end up super depressed, super unhappy, unfulfilled. And there's this very common statistic with founders who sell their companies for crazy amounts of money. And what follows is the lowest most depressive black hole that they've ever experienced because without something that pulls the best of us out of us without a field where we can show up and really test those end ranges without a place where we can really challenge ourselves to rise above our circumstances i think never going to fully actualize we're never going to fully Transcend our limitations. We'll never find out for me who we are, and mm-hmm. at least not to project on anyone. But for me personally, like that doesn't sound like an easy life. Doesn't sound that interesting.
1: No, I dipped my toes in it and taking taking time off, and you know what just actually came back from taking six months off, and the two things that were clear for me that were out of alignment was that I wasn't serving and taking time off. I didn't do any work. I wasn't doing any retreats for one-on-one coaching and work. And it felt like that part of me felt, empty is not the right word. It just felt like a part of me that wanted to be active. It was like, keeping a kid inside when it's a bright, sunny day and they want to go play with their friends. That's the energy of it. I was like, why am I doing Like, what well, I just want to serve. And then the other one was my body. I wasn't training when I was traveling consistently. And I just, it wasn't that I was like, I wasn't shameful about it. I was just like, just really love like being in my body and training my body. And I love like challenge the stretch of getting better every day. And uh, so... When I got back, just clean those two things up and then like fully back in alignment. Yeah, it's it's so, I think it's, and this is just like in my projection perspective is I think it's so glamorized to keep people in the other polarity of working really hard to get to that point. And then unfortunately, a lot of people spend a lot of their lives and their time and their energy before they learn that lesson and then they learn it and a good portion of their life is gone and so i'm grateful that i've learned a lot of those lessons earlier on in life and now can incorporate that yin and yang at the same in the same pace and it's constantly ebbing and flowing for sure like i think about it like seasons or chapters of life And during certain seasons, there's like different energy. Like I have this go energy right now where I feel more lit up to serve, more lit up to train, more lit up to take it all on and really expanding my capacity and like consistently doing the things I know I need to do. And there's also times where I know that rest is needed, or maybe when the time comes to start a family, like I know, like want to be all in on being present in that experience. And so it's just different seasons for life. And this is actually one thing, this is one of the things that I work with men at my men's leadership retreats is like breaking out the idea of purpose to three different levels of purpose. And I won't go into the details of them, but it it basically goes down from like the purpose of this moment here to like the grand purpose of your life. And the middle one is like the purpose of this season of life. And so it gives a little bit more of a tangible concept, context to what I'm actually working towards and what is life really calling me to work towards right now. Because if you're out of alignment with that, like I was for many years, like all the signs were saying like, Chris, you need to slow down. Chris, you need to rest. You actually need to care for your body and your mind and take care of this mental health. But I was doing the opposite I was pushing against it. There was so much stress and tension that caused me to break. And it's like, learning that sooner and maybe not going to the breaking point of doing it. Bend, don't break. And
0: don't break. As we bring this conversation to a close, I'd love for you to share where people can find you, learn more about your work, and reach out to you if they're interested in one of your upcoming retreats.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ani. There's two, two places. One is chrismarhefka.com. It has some upcoming events on there and yeah, ways where you can get involved. Shoot me an info, an email, and then Chris Marhefka on Instagram. I'm relatively active on there and I share some good content. And social media. Yeah. What a pleasure and delight to have you here
0: and share you with this audience. Every time we speak, I just feel a greater and greater level of resonance in how we operate, how we see the world. And yeah, I'm really grateful for the wisdom that you've acquired in the School of Hard Knocks and the work you're doing in the world. And if you're listening to this and any of this resonated, go follow Chris, check out his work. He is truly someone who walks his talk and he operates from a level of integrity that I find pretty uncommon in these spaces. Yeah. And maybe we'll have you back on the show for us to just hyper-focus on that, that idea of integrity and really defining it and helping people understand what's really possible at the end ranges of integrity. Because when I think of you, that word pops up every single time. And I honor you. I honor the journey you've been on. And it's been a, it's been a real pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you so much, honey. I'm honored and grateful. I received those reflections and I feel the same way about you. And so I'm really grateful to have you in my life and the wisdom and the knowledge, like you're a gift to your listeners, to your clients, to anyone that you have in your life, so thank you for being you brother. It's very clear that you've gone through the school of hard knocks as well. The best cool, This <laughs> is the best
0: doesn't feel the best why we're in it but uh-huh
1: yeah and also like I'm all for learning from people that have gone through the school of hard knocks in a way that like they can simplify and make it clear and I don't have to go through every school of hard knocks I've gone through my own versions but
0: we can learn from each other's each other's experience and that's and one of that's one of my favorite aspects of creating a podcast where Can just invite cool friends who have intelligent things to say and who can bring a level of presence to some of these topics and we can just jam out. So Yeah. Thank you for being here. I will see you soon and all my love.
1: Thank you. Thank you
0: you for listening to this episode. If you found value, please consider leaving a five star review to allow the show to reach more people or share this episode via your social media channels. If you're an entrepreneur and want support in exponentially scaling your business, email me at AniAnimanian.com. At